0: Human beings are so interesting. I love to read about what scientists are learning, about how our brains work, about new discoveries in neuroscience. I'm fascinated by psychological studies and experiments and what researchers learn about the way we think and act. Here's one I found recently in the Lancaster newspaper. Researchers at the University of Virginia wanted to find out whether friendship influences how we approach daily life. In an unusual experiment, researchers stood at the base of a steep hill on the university campus and asked students as they walked by to help them in an experiment. Some students were by themselves, and others were walking with friends. The students were given a backpack filled with weights equal to about 20% of their body weight. While they may have had the impression that they were going to have to climb the hill, the researchers simply asked them to estimate how steep the climb would be. Notably, students standing alone perceived the hill slant as steeper and thought it would be harder to climb while carrying the weighted pack. But students who were standing next to a friend thought the hill looked easier to climb and gave lower estimates of its steepness. And interestingly, the longer the friends had known each other, the less steep the hill appeared. Maybe that helps explain these guys up on the roof. Our story in Mark chapter 2 is one of the most dramatic stories of Jesus' healings and one that's always intrigued me. Mark's gospel jumps right into Jesus' ministry. There's no introductory genealogy or stories about his birth. Jesus starts right out in Mark, proclaiming the good news and healing people, healing a man who's possessed, healing Simon's mother-in-law, healing a leper, And now at the beginning of Chapter 2, the paralyzed man on a mat. It's one of the stories that we often hear in Sunday school, perhaps because it's so dramatic. When I was a girl, what intrigued me about this story was the logistics. (laughs) First of all, how did they get up there? Roofs are high up. And then the whole idea of taking a roof apart I imagined taking off shingles and then roofing sheets and then you have trusses and beams and then, of course, the ceiling plaster. And this wasn't just to make a little hole to let some light in. They needed a hole big enough for a grown man on a mattress. It seems like it would take a day at least, certainly not just a few minutes while Jesus was talking to his friends down below. Later on, when I lived in places where roofs were less complicated, made of grass or tin sheets, and could be dismantled more easily, it seemed a bit more realistic, but still not very practical. Why not just wait outside on the path? Jesus would have to come out of the house sometime. Why the urgency? Why the need for this drastic action? Think of those guys up there on the roof working away frantically and the people down below ducking as pieces of dust and roof rained down on them. In fact, you would think, given what was happening up above them, that by the time they got him down through the roof, the room might be cleared out enough, enough people might have left, that they could have got him in the door after all. That drama is the first thing we see in this story. That's what we notice as children. That's what draws us into the story. But there's more here. And some of it is even more puzzling than dismantling a roof. When Jesus sees the man coming down out of the sky on his mat, what's the first thing he says to him? Son... Your sins are forgiven. Do you think that's what they expected? The four friends that took the roof apart? Is that why they carried him to Jesus? It seems like an anticlimax to me. How many of us would go to that kind of trouble for that response? We're used to the idea of forgiveness, it's a central tenet of our faith that we are forgiven by God and welcomed by God. We know we're always sinful. We know we fall short. We miss the mark. But we have confidence that when we confess, when we ask, forgiveness is there. But in Jesus' time, in the first century, it didn't seem quite so clear. There was an assumed link between sin and physical illness. You might remember the discussion Jesus had with his disciples later on in the gospel when they met a blind man and the disciples asked, is this man blind because of his sins or his parents' sins? Physical well-being and spiritual well-being were considered to be brought by evil They were closely linked in that world. And an affliction was considered to be sent by God to punish sins. So there was a close link between healing and forgiveness. Or forgiveness and healing. Now Jesus here goes on immediately to address the bystanders. The ones that Mark calls the scribes. The ones who are looking askance. And we're told asking questions in their heart about his authority. Like so much in Mark's gospel, the question really is about who Jesus is. And he proceeds to respond by completing the healing. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or stand, take up your mat, and walk? So here, I'll prove it to you. I do have authority to forgive sins just as I have power to heal bodies. That's who I am. That's what the Messiah is. This authority that belongs to God is something I can exercise. Forgiven and healed. Healed and forgiven. And we're told the man stood up, took his mat, and went home probably not walking calmly, I'd guess, probably jumping and shouting while the guys up there repairing the roof were dancing right along with him. And the whole crowd was amazed, we're told, and they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. From a question about logistics and getting through a roof to Jesus, to questions about the relationship between sin and healing, this story continues to fascinate me. But there's something more here, something that brings the story close to me. Did you notice the clause that begins verse 5? When Jesus saw their faith we're told that Jesus' response, his forgiveness and healing of this man, happened when Jesus saw their faith. Often in gospel stories, Jesus responds to persons in need of help or of healing because he sees their faith. It's a common statement of his. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has healed you. But in this case, it's not the paralyzed man's faith he's seeing. In fact, we don't know anything about how hopeful he was, about what kind of faith he had. What Jesus sees is the faith of his friends. When Jesus sees their faith, the faith that led them to go to the extreme of dismantling a roof over his head, that's when he forgives and heals this man. Not for his faith, for theirs. For several years, I chaired the committee that oversaw the Just One Call program of Lancaster Downtowners. Lancaster Downtowners is an association of senior citizens living in Lancaster who support each other in various ways as we age, and Just One Call is a, is a central part of that. It's a program that matches volunteers with persons needing assistance. And the name comes because there's only one number. You just make one call. Just One Call helps people do tasks around the house, helps them shovel their sidewalks. If you walked to church this morning, you know that's a good thing helps them change light bulbs or do light cleaning or wash windows. It can also provide transport to appointments or to shopping or help with various other needs. You would think that it would be a popular program. And we don't have any trouble finding volunteers ready to help. But one of the things we struggled with was people's reluctance to ask for help. In fact, there were, there were several times that our committee learned after the fact of a Downtowners member who had had surgery or had been ill but who hadn't called for help. Even though we repeatedly stress that this is one of the members, benefits that their membership dues paid for. It's hard to admit we need help. We live In a culture that values independence, self-reliance, the sort of tropes of our culture, our heroes like the intrepid pioneer or the lone ranger or the self-made man or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, we don't like to ask for help. That's why I'm so grateful for our community life-sharing time. I have a friend who's Episcopalian, and she once said to me that while her theology is very Anabaptist, she would find it difficult to worship in a Mennonite church because she would miss the weekly Eucharist. It's, for her, that's too central a part of worship to lose. We don't do Eucharist or communion every week, though I'm glad we do it more frequently than we used to. But what we do do every week as a central part of our worship time together is have a time for sharing, for talking to each other about our needs and our requests for prayer. Our community life sharing time is a central part of what we do together every week. Our worship Time wouldn't feel complete without it. Our community life sharing gives us a chance to practice every Sunday, to practice being vulnerable and admitting we need help, to practice relying on each other, to put ourselves in the position of the man on a mat, to practice allowing others to carry us to Jesus. As Alan said earlier, today is Anabaptist World Fellowship Sunday. We're invited every year to commemorate this on the Sunday closest to January 21, which is the date of the first Anabaptist baptisms in Zurich, Switzerland, that marked the beginning of this movement. So on this Sunday, we remember in a special way the network, the community of churches around the world that we're connected to. We're invited to focus in prayer on these brothers and sisters and to reflect with them on how God has led and continues to lead us as a people. Each year, churches from one continent are invited to develop worship materials and suggest scriptures and a theme. And this year, the planners represent North America, the Anabaptist churches in the U.S. and Canada. The theme they suggest, which is on the front of your bulletin, is Jesus Christ, our hope. And the scriptures include Psalm 62 that we used in our call to worship, the verses from Ephesians 1 that Rosalind read for us, and this story from Mark's gospel. Together, these scriptures call us to an awareness of our reliance on God and of our need for one another. We often hear calls here in our sharing time to pray for brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world, especially if there's an earthquake or a fire or a hurricane or where there's war and conflict that makes folks insecure and makes them have to leave their homes. We're called to pray for refugees and asylum seekers and those who don't have the security that we enjoy. We're called to pray for Anabaptist churches Around the world. For about 12 years, while Bob and I worked in the MCC Peace Office, I had the privilege of having part of a portion of my staff time given by MCC to Mennonite World Conference to be a a staff person for the Mennonite World Conference Peace Council. And in that role, I was able to attend a number of Mennonite World Conference meetings, and to get to know brothers and sisters from around the world. Many of us here had the chance to experience the beauty of this wider body a few years ago when we helped to host the MWC World Assembly in Harrisburg. One of the things that impressed me in these Mennonite World Conference relationships was how important this connection was for many of those churches. We here are surrounded by churches, by institutions, by connections with other Christians. But for a number of folks that I met in MWC circles who lived in places where Christianity is not a majority religion or whose churches were much smaller and less organized than ours... For them, being part of a wider network, having an identity that reached around the world, gave them strength. But the gift I received from those connections was not just those friendships and connections. The gift I received was the awareness that these fellow Christians in the Mennonite World Conference were not only asking us to pray for them, They were also praying for us. They were looking at our needs and the struggles in our society and in our churches, and they were carrying us to Jesus. In the same way that Paul was praying for the Ephesians, our fellow Christians around the world are praying for us. So many expressions of faith, so many voices all carrying each other to Jesus. Last week, Todd looked with us at our verse for the year, and he focused especially on the call to return. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. He reminded us that in these crazy-making times we live in, when we're surrounded by hints of war, by demonizing of the poor and homeless, By messages that devalue people, that the way we can stay strong is by daily turning and returning to God. This is a crucial need, and I agree. But the other piece of this, the piece this story reminds us of, is that to do that, we need each other. I need you to carry me to faith. I need your faith to help me with this daily returning. We all need our brothers and sisters, those around the world and those sitting next to us here. I can be paralyzed sometimes, overcome with fear or sorrow or with a feeling of helplessness at all the things around me in the world that need to be fixed and that I'm not able to fix. Poverty, and homelessness, and conflict, and xenophobia, and climate change, you know the list. And when I am, what I need is friends who can carry me to Jesus. I need the prayers of my brothers and sisters so that, as Paul puts it, the eyes of my heart can be enlightened, and I can know the hope to which I've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power. I need you walking beside me. And when you're there, the hill doesn't seem so steep. Thanks be to God.